Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. I am very excited. And Zach, if you ruin this for me, why are you going to ruin this for me? Well, strangely, considering we're, what, a few hundred episodes into this, we've never looked at the Aztecs, which was the kind of childhood adoration topic of a certain young Alex Churchill. I was mainly, obsessed. Absolutely mainly, obsessed. Yeah, yeah, but tell people why you were obsessed, because this is going to scare them ever so slightly. So we're... The title you've given this podcast is everything you know about the Aztecs is probably wrong. If you take away the ripping the still beaten hearts out of their enemies and crapping all over them or whatever, I will be really upset. So essentially you're expecting the Aztecs to be full on apocalypto. Badass. Right. We're probably going to ruin your entire childhood. And the reason we're going to do that is because we're looking at how pretty much everything that you know about the Aztecs and the Conquistadors is basically wrong. And here to enlighten us is Matthew Restall. Matthew is Professor of History, Anthropology and Women's Studies at Pennsylvania State University and is a prolific researcher on Latin America and the Spanish conquest with books including Conquistadors, a very short introduction, and The Mayor, a very short introduction, although I probably mispronounced mayor and it's actually my, I can never work out which one it's meant to be. And crucially for today, he's also written When Montezuma Met Cortez, the true story of the meeting that changed history. Matthew, brilliant to have you on. Alex is massively trepidatious, as you've heard already, but never mind about that. How are you? <laughs> uh, uh, hello, Zach. Hello, Alex. Uh, thank you for having me on. Um, I'm good. Thank you. And, um, you know, let, let's not ruin this for Alex at all. Let's, oh no, let's forget. <laughs> yeah, let's to let's me. just talk about just 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 to say the Aztecs were just horrible from beginning to end, and that's just we'll do that for an hour just to make her feel better. Yeah, <laughs> don't bring your facts and rain on my parade. Right, exactly. I was going to say that's not facts. what this podcast is for. And I was like, damn History it, is not it. about facts. Come yeah. on, <laughs> it's about, it's about re reinforcing whatever ideas you picked up in childhood from reading horrible histories. Well, Mel Gibson made a fortune out of that approach to history. 
quite a few prominent historians have, haven't they? But anyway, let's move on before we start naming names. Let's strip this back to the basics for folks who aren't familiar with the period. What's going on geopolitically during this period, both in the new world, as it ends up becoming called, and the old? Right. I mean, that's a hard thing to summarise in, in a short amount of time because it's incredibly... Um, momentous point in the history of humanity this is this is the this is the time when the world is about to change very dramatically permanently uh, in a, in a sense there's kind of a dividing line between the 10 or 20,000 years of human history that comes before this where yes of course there was change but relatively speaking things more or less stayed the same and at this point on for the for the next 500 years up to the present, um, there's going to be one incredibly dramatic change after another, and and so what we're seeing here in this particular moment, 500 years ago in Mexico, is is a, is a key uh, a series of events in that in that transformation. So it's the age of empires, right? There are uh, empires all over the world, Asia, Africa, Europe, in the Americas, uh, but what's going to happen here is two empires are going to clash um, in a way that's that's going to both change the world but also symbolize a larger uh, a larger kind of clash that's taking place so in the americas the two big empires in the 15th century leading up into the early 16th century the inca empire in south america runs all down the andes and the aztec empire in central southern mexico and in europe uh, we're at the kind of the early stage of the rise of what's going to be five really important seaborne European empires, the, the, those of Portugal, Spain, France, the Dutch, and the, and the English that then becomes the British, right? Uh, but here we are in the early 16th century, and it's just the Portuguese and the Spanish so far who are really beginning to, to, to kind of make an impact. Um, and so, you know, that's a kind of a messy story, right? That that goes over decades and centuries and uh, is really huge. And so it's always helpful for historians when we can isolate particular moments, even a particular day. We can say, let's start with this day and then extrapolate out from there to see um, how this helps us to understand what exactly is going on. And And that's why um, in the book that you mentioned at the end of your introduction to me, the When Montezuma Met Cortez, I know we're going to come to that meeting later on in our conversation, but that's why I began that study and that book with that particular moment, which was November the 8th, um, 1519. Uh, Is it fair to describe the, just kind of rewinding a little bit in terms of the discovery of the new world, when Columbus discovers the new world is i mean the way i kind of think about it for modern as a modern equivalent would be if we went to let's say mars not knowing that mars was there and then suddenly found life on mars is that kind of the the scale of the shock that people have when news arrives back in the old world you know i i used to like that analogy a lot zach um I used it in classroom. I think I've even used it in print, but I, I'm not so sure anymore. And I, the, the, the reason, there's two reasons why I'm not so sure. One is um, there aren't any aliens involved here, right? So that Europeans discover human beings 
and um, they did not think of them. They did think of them as human beings. They did not think of them as something else, but they thought of them as inferior human beings. So as soon as we start talking about aliens and, and humans, you really kind of muddy the waters of us trying to understand um, what was the reaction of Europeans and how that contributed to the development of modern racism. It's the discovery of humans elsewhere in the world that we didn't know existed. Oh, but yeah, they obviously humans, but they're not as, you know, they're not as good as us. They're inferior to us. And then the transatlantic slave trade and, the, and a, a whole sort of development of an attitude towards um, Africans, right? So I think we, <laughs> when thinking about aliens and uh, versus humans, you kind of muddy those waters a lot. And then the other reason I, I've become more, a little bit suspicious of that is um, I think it's easy for us to overstate um, the shock of discovering a whole new pair of continents um, fully populated with people and animals and so on. I, I think um, there was an expectation by Europeans that when they sailed out across the ocean, if, if they didn't die, that they would find things that were new. Uh, so they didn't, it, it, it's easy for us to be like, well, okay, Columbus argued that he was just going to cross a big ocean and reach Asia. And he insisted until the day he died that that's what he'd done because that was his contract. And when it was clear that he had lied or not, or had certainly violated his contract, he gets arrested and shipped back to Spain to face the investigation. Um, so it's easy for us to say, well, that's what they thought. They thought they were going to just find Asia. They didn't know there were new continents there. I, I don't think that's that's true. That the fact that Europeans or, for that matter, Asians did not know the whole world and what the whole world looked like didn't didn't mean that they therefore thought they knew it and that there wasn't anything else out there. They they expected there were places that they had not seen and people and creatures, uh, if anything, they thought that there would be strange, um, monstrous creatures and strange creatures, and they continued to insist that, that they were there, uh, right? That there were people in the new world, there were Amazons, right? Um, you know, people with faces, no heads and faces on their chests and, and, and those kinds of weird uh, magical creatures. So um, I, I think it's easy for us to kind of overstate that. Now, I just said this is like an incredible turning point. It, it is, but not so much because of that. It's a turning point because it, it, it's a series of events um, that leads to the world becoming one and leads to globalization and so on. And I'm struck there by what you say about how, and I suppose my question here is about how rapidly that assumption of inferiority inverted commas comes on is it almost a kind of a first contact assumption that well we've managed to get here and therefore we are somehow better what is it that underpins that assumption of superiority on the part of the europeans and and how quickly does that emerge in the way in which people talk about the indigenous population yeah that i mean that that's a good question and a big one and you know, historians would sort of debate and argue over that endlessly, right? I, I think partly it's that, um, you know, getting into talking about the, the dawn of modern racism is a, is a very kind of tricky um, terrain. And, and, and as I said, historians are really going to argue about that. But I, I think it's probably fair to say that all Europeans in the 16th century 
whether they are are or are not racist in the way that we would think, they're they're extremely ethnocentric. So they think of themselves and their ethnic group, meaning the people who speak that particular language. So that's not Spaniards, that's Castilians. That's people who speak Castilian. They're a little bit um, ethnocentric and prejudicial against um, other people within what we think of as Spain who maybe had been forced to convert from Islam. They were Jewish, maybe they were Portuguese perhaps they're Catalans or even uh, Gallegos or Basques. I mean, there's a lot of prejudice against people who are different from the way you are. Um, And so there's, I think that they're kind of primed, whoever they are, whether it's Castilians or Basques who feel like they're better than the Castilians and vice versa. And then when they get to the new world, they're primed to kind of look down on indigenous people. So there's that. But also I have to remember, Zach, that before the Spaniards get to the mainland and they encounter Mayas and Aztecs, um, the people that they are encountering for a whole generation in the Caribbean and in some of the areas around the Caribbean um, do not live in uh, highly settled sedentary societies with big cities of buildings made of stone and so on. And so these are the trappings that Spaniards associate with civilization. Like why why are the people in the Caribbean, um, you know, not fully clothed? Um, Where are their big cities? Where are the stone buildings? Um, Where's their sophisticated weaponry and so on. And so it's very easy for them to say, okay, these people are in two categories. Either they're just like children, barely human. They're just incredibly innocent, uh, pliant. We can enslave them. Um, it takes no effort at all, um, or they're savage. So as soon as indigenous peoples in the Caribbean resist the way they're being treated, which is they're being enslaved, moved around, forced to go to work, uh, panning for gold in rivers and so on. Um, as soon as they resist that, oh, these are savages, they're cannibals, right? So there's a whole kind of myth that Europeans create about even the word Caribbean essentially derives from the word for cannibals. So you get this kind of good Indians, bad Indians trope, that kind of dyad. Um, And when they get to the mainland and before they even see the Aztecs, they see Maya cities built close to the coast um, with stone pyramids and, you know, temples and other buildings on top. And so they go, oh, okay, now we're getting somewhere. This is what we've been looking for. Uh, Here we have... Uh, advanced civilizations. Now, you know, they're impressed and, and they're amazed and it's what they want, but they're advanced civilizations, but hmm, are they advanced civilizations like us, right? So there's always lurking underneath this sort of, wow, this is it. We've we found people who uh, live in complex societies and have all the trappings of civilization. They seem to have a kind of a writing system and, you know, cause that's one of the signs that you have to be civilized. But at the same time, there are these prejudices and there's this expectation that you can put people into kind of categories of, you know, good, good Indian and, and bad Indian. So those are, are kind of lurking behind. Um, it, it, and that's when we get to the Aztecs, we find that the reputation of the Aztecs is going to be set almost before the Aztecs are even discovered by the Spaniards. These are the ideas they're bringing with them. And it's important for us to understand how they're then reacting to the Aztecs. They just don't have just blank open minds. Like, well, let's see who's here. And now we'll evaluate them based on, you know, no prejudicial preconceptions whatsoever. Obviously it's not like that.
So with the Aztecs, let's get to them. Uh, I am not the only moron listening to this podcast that went, yay, human sacrifices and all cool stuff when you mentioned the Aztecs. Um, human sacrifices is one trope. What's the others? We have uh, technologically not that advanced. Uh, Spaniards would think they were technologically superior, um, but buildings they are, um, and a patriarchal society. How accurate are these perceptions? Uh, yeah, I mean, the... I, I suppose I want to sort of pull apart these these bit these things a little bit from from each yeah. other, which is mm-hmm. what you know. Cis typical historians is like start getting pedantic about things, right? Um, so I won't do that. But 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 I think the basic idea that you're picking up on, Alex, is that um, above all, nothing really matters about the Aztecs. Above all, what really matters, the only thing um, in this traditional view, is that they were really obsessed with human sacrifice. And, and, and let's get into all of the details of that. That's what, that's what people have been fed for 500 years. Yeah, I mean, that's how they sold it to me in primary school. They were like, look. <laughs> look, and, and, and of course, that, that whole image of someone still alive, having their chest cavity opened up and their heart taken out and they're still beating in front of them and so on. It's an incredibly vivid captivating image right no wonder people are kind of uh, obsessed with that and actually it doesn't really matter how true or true it isn't Mm. you're never going to be able to get rid of that idea but did they participate in human sacrifice so what did as let's get down to it here did the aztecs ritually execute people yes absolutely Mm -hmm. right so i'm not going to argue oh no they were just you know peace-loving um, happy people and they all lived in harmony and the whole thing has completely been in- invented. I think um, it's about uh, different levels and degrees of distortion and exaggeration, um, which is, of course, is, is what you'd expect. If something could be completely made up, that that invention would not hold up. In time, it would have collapsed. But, um, the you know, the lies and distortions and inventions, we're going to get to a number of these in talking about this history, um, the ones that last, the ones that survive are the ones that, that are built on something that really happened and kind of real observation. So, uh, you know, I, I'd say two things about, about that is, first of all, um, to what degree was Aztec civilization really obsessed and devoted to bloodthirsty rituals in which people were, you know, tortured and executed and so on, mm-hmm. um, to, to a degree no greater or lesser than anyone in Europe at the time. Okay. So if you if you if you if you want to uh, characterize Elizabethan England as being a society in which people are ritually tortured in public and executed in kind of grim, inventive ways, right? Yeah, it's I mean, very like easy saying to do. fire to someone is worse than ripping their heart out. I mean, you rip their heart out and they're pretty much done. The burning someone alive is a horrific spectacle. And it's exactly. entertainment, and, Elizabeth. Yeah. I mean, Alex, you're taking us right into the classic classroom conversation here. I love this stuff. And I, and I say to, to, to students, how would you rather die? Yeah. Um, and these are all the Aztec ones. And these are all the European ones. This is the, And it sort of depends on whether we're in Spain or in England. Actually, I would say in England, it's worse than in Spain. But uh, that's not something I would say in print. That's just sort of part of our having conversations in classroom, you know, like comparing different ways to die. Um, but very quickly, you know, you start to kind of get the picture. It's like, okay, it's all what you, depends on what you pick out and select. Let's ignore Shakespeare, 
And that's just talking about being burned at the stake, right? Mm. And so that's what's happened to the Aztecs is, is this is one type of uh, ritualized execution has been seized upon and, it, and exaggerated and it's been turned into this, this idea that this is all that's, that's going on. And, and, and um, there's so much more about Aztec civilization um, that Aztec scholars know about and have investigated and written about. There's a whole literature, but it just hasn't worked its way through that, that firewall between scholars who study the Aztecs and, and the kind of general public and the general population. And, and, and partly because it's hard to compete with someone getting their heart cut out with an obsidian yeah. blade. So how technologically advanced were they then? So, you know, in what's technologically advanced in what sense, right? Mm. Um, so did they have, had they built ocean uh, uh, ships that could sail on oceans? No but they didn't need to. Why would they need to do that, right? Um, yeah. Did they have uh, guns? No, um, but the, the guns the Spaniards had were, uh, I don't know if you can say this word on your board, but crap. Oh yeah, we, we go worse than that. Um, and they were pretty much useless. Uh, you know, I get kind of worked up about guns, germs and steel, just as a phrase, let alone as an argument, because in, in the war we're talking about here between the Aztecs and Spanish conquistadors in 1519 to 21, um, there's no rifles, there's no handguns, there's nothing that we think of as guns, right? There I mean, be, pretty much arquebuses. the best use of a gun is clubbing someone with it at this point. Well, right? I, I like, I, I don't know where you got that from, Alex, but you are absolutely spot on. And there's actually a veteran conquistador who in the end of the 16th century is writing about how you fight against um, indigenous resistance. He's, it's a sort of, in a way, it's the first um, manual for guerrilla warfare and counter-terrorism. And he says, best thing you can do with a gun is turn it round, hold the, hold the um, barrel and use the, the wooden butt as a club. Because it takes you so long to, to uh, put the powder and, and the ball in. And, and uh, that's if your powder isn't wet, because after all, much of the place, most of the places where conquistadors are fighting indigenous people in the Americas, it's, it's tropical. Uh, it takes you so long that by that point, you've got, you know, if not one, maybe half a dozen indigenous warriors on you with blades. So it's, it's, it's not helpful. Um, so in terms of technology, how about cities? Let's look at cities. Um, let's look at cities in, in Spain or elsewhere in Europe and see how people there are managing uh, city issues, which essentially it's how you deal with the four elements, right? Um, you know, clean air, uh, clean water, stop your city from flooding, stop your city from um, being consumed by fire and so on. Spaniards, when they get to Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, are absolutely amazed because this is a, a beautifully laid out and engineered city. It's a, it's a city in the, in the, on an island in the middle of the lakes. So it's surrounded by water and the Aztecs have figured out a way to separate out um, brackish water or salt water from fresh water. They have a, a kind of a causeway and dam system to, to battle flooding. Uh, there are um, canals that go right through the city and everything is in straight lines, unlike in uh, European cities in the end of the medieval, early modern period, where they're just kind of like filthy warrens of little narrow streets and so forth. So these are open spaces, open streets with canals where um, canoes can come in and remove um, 
night soil, as historians kind of um, rather delicately put it, right? And take that out to, to be used to, to fertilize floating fields, or they're called chinampas, but there are floating fields in the lake. So that food is actually being grown on these floating fields within the lake and that food can then be brought into the city. I mean, the whole thing is, is, is stunning in terms of um, its organization and in terms of, if you want to call it urban technology. So it depends on what you, what you pick on, Alex, right? Uh, let's talk about writing system. Okay, so the alphabet is a more efficient writing system than the writing systems that existed in, in Mesoamerica, um, uh, so different parts like of Mexico. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say, is it similar to the Incas with their knotted colored string that we can't no. out now? Or No. So, so, so the people who study the quipus, the, the, that system of knotted strings yeah. um, among the Incas, they have a hard time, a little bit of an uphill battle convincing people that that is a system of communication that is effectively like, like writing and it's just as good and so on. So that, you know, it's you just get trade, into some isn't it? It's a system of communication. It's a kind of writing system, but it is yeah. not as efficient. I mean, I'm going to get into trouble here, right? But it's not as efficient as not. It, for example, you, it's hard to translate. I know I mentioned Shakespeare, which is a total cliche, but it's hard to translate Shakespeare into, into the quipu. Yeah. But the Mesoamerican writing systems are which are different. So the ones the Aztecs are using and the ones the Maya are using are slightly different. The Maya one is the most developed. The Maya system is about 800 glyphs. You can say or write anything. You can translate Shakespeare into, into Maya hieroglyphs. And that is in no way inferior. Now, does it use up more space? Yes. So in a sense, it's less efficient. It's less adaptable to other languages the way the alphabet is. Um, but it's, it's beautiful. It's a work of art, right? It's, it, doesn't, it looks something completely different than just a page, a page of text. So I, I think these are different systems and it, you want to begin with the point of, look, just, let's not talk about which one is better and which one is worse. One system is more efficient for this, one is more efficient for that, and so on. So there, there are kind of differences there. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of going around in circles here, still trying to answer your technology <laughs> question. Alex, I, 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 would, I, I think the, kind of the bottom line here is that um, we get nowhere if we buy into the Spanish idea that... Um, civilizations in the Americas like the Aztecs weren't really civilizations, right? Once we buy into that, we're, we're into kind of a civilization versus barbarism trope that doesn't get us anywhere in terms of better understanding those the indigenous societies. It helps us to understand the Spaniards yeah. um, or any Europeans. Yes, that's because then we, we get their kind of mentality. Um, but I think the beginning point needs to be, uh, let's, let's look at the differences not with a view to figuring out who was better or who was more advanced in any way, but just to see how they were different because that's interesting, right? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hmm. Speaking of, Zach, take us on to the other side. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm struck by what you said about guns, germs and steel a few moments ago. I mean, one of the things that's rattling around in the back of my brain is the numbers issue here in terms of what the, the conquistadors are attempting to do. You have a fully established indigenous population. You've only, you can only bring so many people across on one boat. And yes, you can keep bringing people across, but the numbers are never going to, in my head at least, reach a point where you have a numerical advantage. So to what extent does disease actually play a bigger role in Spanish conquest than the military side of things? Yeah, disease disease obviously plays a, a big part. Um, but I think disease has to be understood only in combination with other factors. So I, I, I think if we just try to isolate disease and say, um, what were the diseases? You know, why why did they kill so many people? Okay, so we understand that, right? That indigenous peoples in the Americas have not been exposed to um, uh, a whole long list of viruses and so on. So, so something like smallpox was incredibly deadly. It was deadly in in, in Europe, but the survival rates were way, way way higher than they were among indigenous people. So, if we kind of isolate that and 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 try and figure out how many people died um, from those diseases and say, well, look, uh, the population, indigenous population of the Americas um, seems to have fallen by about 90% over the course of roughly a hundred years. So it's really, I mean, historians argue about this all the time, right? Um, About what these numbers are and so on. But if we try to, estimate what the population was of indigenous peoples in the Americas when Columbus first arrives in 1492 and it's somewhere around 50 million. Again, that you, you get estimates that range from, you know, 10 to 150, but around say 50 million. And then we move forward hundred years, roughly. What, what is the indigenous population in the Americas? It's about 5 million. So that's, that's, that's a massive, massive, that's the wow. biggest, population drop of any group of people in human history and sometimes it's talked about as being holocaustal or a holocaust which i think is tricky to use that word because the whole point about the holocaust is that it was deliberate and we can't get once we get away from its deliberate nature we're we're, you know we're we're like a step towards like holocaust denial or something or places that we really don't want to go um it's not deliberate Yes, there are moments of, there are genocidal moments in the Americas um, in which Europeans and actually the people who I would argue are uh, more interested in that kind of total destruction uh, are not Spaniards, it's um, in some cases the English or just their descendants and the descendants of the Spaniards. So there's like there's Holocaustal moments that are taking place in California in the 19th century and in parts of the um, of the United States um, and in Patagonia and, and southern Chile and so on. So yes, there are genocidal moments, but by and large, particularly trying to keep it back to where we are thinking about Aztecs and Spanish conquistadors, the last thing that the Spaniards want is for the population to disappear. Yeah. 
See, they're not actually there just looking for gold, right? It's not that, oh, That's these another greedy... Trope, isn't it? Yeah, it is. The greedy Spaniards looking for gold. They just like, they don't, you know, they're going to mistreat people and so on. Uh, I were you know, there. Go on, set us straight. They're there to settle. Mm. They're there. They're there to create colonies, and they're not. And they're not. It's not. They're not like the the um, the pilgrims in New England. Um, and even then, I think that that the idea that the pilgrims just wanted to do, um, kill all the indigenous people and claim all the land for themselves is a little bit of a distortion. But it's much more so than what the Spaniards were doing. Spaniards needed indigenous people. The reason they're so excited when they discover these advanced civilizations on the mainland, the Maya and the Aztecs and so on, is they realize that there's a potential here for them to establish colonies. Um, colonies in which they rule, but here you have a, a, a large settled population who are accustomed to producing food and, in, and engaging in other forms of labor, building buildings and so on. As soon as they see those pyramids, they go, these people know how to build. Mm. And they have a system for organizing labor if we can tap into that, they can be building houses for us and, and, and churches and cathedrals and so on, which is, which is what happens. Um, how they persuade people to do that is a different, is a different question. We'll maybe get to that. Um, so, uh, you know, disease is, is an important factor, but it's, it, it can kind of distract us from um, what's actually happening in 1519 to 21, for example. And, and I said, there's a 90% population drop and Zach kind of like goes wide eyed, but that's over a hundred years. That's not happening during the war, right? So right. what else is happening during the war that is tied in with the impact of disease is there's two other things. One is actual mortality from, from battle. Um, uh, so it, there are some villages in, the, within the Aztec empire or, or around it that actually don't experience this war at all. But there are others in which they are attacked. Um, and In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. The men are taken outside of the village into the fields and slaughtered, sometimes by the hundreds. Um, and then the women and children are enslaved. Um, and all that's left in that village maybe will be you know, a handful of survivors, very small children, old people. Um, but particularly they're looking for um, young women who will then act as sex slaves. Uh, and some of them are, you know, 11, 12, 13, and then will go on to become domestic servants. And they are moved around um, what are sort of the beginning of the colonies in the mainland and into the Caribbean. And then, um, an unknown number of thousands are sent back to Spain um, where we, they kind of disappear into the historical record for decades and then suddenly emerge decades later. Uh, you know, so, so someone said, yeah, I don't really remember Mexico because I was only 11 or 12 or roughly whatever they, you know, the sense of ages when I was, um, when uh, people came into our village and uh, they set fire to the, 
to the houses and dragged everybody out. And then I was passed to run from this Spaniard to that Spaniard. And then I was sold to a Portuguese and then I was on a ship. And, and now I've been living as a, as a slave in a house in Seville or wherever in Spain for the last kind of 30 years of my life. So that, you know, there's that kind of human element to the story, I think that is really important. And if we just talk about disease and numbers and kind of total death, we get away from that. Uh, so, you know, slaughter and enslavement um, combined with disease and creating incredible disruption. And that helps us to understand how it is that this can all happen when you only have a few hundred Spaniards. So, Zach, you brought this numbers up issue. I mean, it, it seems like it should be a simple thing and it's complicated and it ultimately is a great question because it leads us in so many different directions. So, first of all, the idea that Cortes shows up with four or 500 Spanish men and that in a course of two years, this small group of men are able to conquer an empire of tens of millions of people right. is so completely distorted. <laughs> and it, it, it's like the human sacrifice thing. It's sort of, there's sort of an element of truth, but as soon as you start getting into the details of it, that's the whole thing just kind of collapses. Right. Um, so in terms of the numbers, uh, this number of Spaniards during this war is going up and down all the time um, because there's um, a myth that, that Cortes uh, sank or burned his ships. Yeah. It's a myth that's incredibly persistent. I, I, I mean, there, there was the archaeological work that's been going on in Mexico recently where they somebody said they found the ships, but Cortes sank, right? What did and, you say? <laughs> I was just... And, you know, Mexican scholars know us, you know, better than non-Mexican scholars. It's like, that's not really what happened. But, hey, that gets headlines. It gets funding for work and so on. So um, if Cortes sank the ships or burned the ships, whatever nonsense you want to believe, how is it possible that there are hundreds and hundreds of Spaniards going back and forth all the way through the war? There's some of them are going all the way back as far as Spain. They're coming in from Cuba and from um, Santo Domingo. So the two main Spanish colonies are in Cuba and then what is today where the Dominican Republic and, and Haiti are, right? But, but really where the Dominican Republic is. So they're coming all the time. Um, most of them die. So of those, those initial, uh, that group of, of, of whatever it is, whatever the number we want to say, 450 or something, um, they don't conquer the Aztec Empire because most of them die. They, they're dead they're dead by the end and a significant number who aren't dead aren't actually in mexico at the end anyway so it it no one has yet quite pinned down um exactly whom who in that list makes it to the very end but it's more or less about a hundred right so the of the guys who come in the beginning well see when i say that in the classroom students go whoa that's even more impressive you're saying only a hundred guys con conquered the empire. I'm like, well, well, you fail by no. <laughs> by the end of the siege, so by August of 1521, when Tenochtitlan falls, there are actually a thousand Spaniards there. Right, and so only ten percent of those Spaniards um, ha have kind of been there more or less all along. Right, so so first of all, it's pretty complicated in terms of people coming and going. Um, secondly, at that siege. Let's, let's just sort of move forward. Let's, let's pretend it's August the 13th right now. And we're exactly 500 years after the end of that siege. At the end of the war, Tenochtitlan falls. 
the invaders, the besiegers now, now possess that island capital. The image that we have is of Spaniards conquering Aztecs, Spaniards winning the capital. But less than 1% of the besieging forces are Spanish. Okay. Less than 1%. More than 99% of the people who are attacking are not Spanish. Where are they from? So they are overwhelmingly Mesoamerican, meaning they're indigenous peoples from, from the mainland. Um, mostly the same ethnicity as the Nahua, as the Aztecs, right? They are Nahuas, they're people who speak Nahuatl. Um, and there are some people who speak different languages or different ethnicities from um, within and outside the empire. There'd be a small number of, of Taino indigenous people that Spaniards brought from the Caribbean. And there'd be some Africans as well, um, free or enslaved Africans fighting with the Spaniards. But those are tiny percentages. You're still talking about somewhere in the region of 98 to 99% of the attackers being of the same ethnicity as the people they're attacking. That's insane. Right? So as soon as you realize that, you go, okay, so I, this, this is what, I don't know, this, this war is clearly a whole different kind of thing. Who's it dividing? Is it dividing one town against another to some extent? It's also dividing families. There are brothers who are fighting on one or the other side, right? Who, who, are, who have fled the, the, the Tenochtitlan, the, the, the city on the island to go onto the other side to, to fight with the attackers. Um, or they are from one of the cities in the valley that would part of the Aztec empire who have gone into the city in order to, in order to defend. And, and the, the decisions that people are making, you know, we ought to be able to understand that because that's what happened in the American Civil War. It's what happened in the English Civil War. It's what happened in Yugoslavia in the 1990s, right? Anywhere where some outside force or some internal problem destabilizes the arrangement that existed. And in this case, it's the arrival of Spaniards. Yes, there are only a few hundred of them, but they are incredibly violent. They are relentless. They keep on coming. They bring with them different kinds of, you know, technologies. We didn't talk about steel, but the steel sword, which, you know, iron and steel does have an impact. Um, and they destabilize the region. They completely destabilize it. And so in that, in that new circumstance in which people think that mm, things are changing really dramatically here, I need to get on the right side of it. People are, are forced to kind of make these, these difficult choices. And sometimes that, that comes down to a difference of opinion within a particular, within a particular family. So um, it's a civil war, uh, but it's a civil war that has been created by the arrival of Spaniards. Um, and in the middle of that war, we tend to see this as Spaniards with indigenous allies. And that, that is particularly well known in, in Mexico, right? Out, outside yeah. Mexico, I think the idea just of oh, the Spaniards came in and they conquered the Aztecs, that, um, that old kind of simple trope survives better. I don't think anybody believes that in Mexico, as you'd imagine, people have a more kind of complicated, sophisticated understanding and relationship with these events because it's you know so much their own history. Um, but nonetheless, there is still very much an idea that, well, what, what made it possible for the Spaniards to do it with their indigenous allies? Why? Because there was uh, a city-state called Tlaxcala, it's still, obviously it's this town in Mexico today, city in Mexico, Tlaxcala, that they had not been conquered by the Aztecs. Um, and so they hated the Aztecs, the 
empire had surrounded them. They were really important. And then other subjects of the Aztecs hated them because they were, now we're going back to the very beginning of what we were talking about, because of this idea that they were bloodthirsty, um, authoritarian, uh, you know, they were like sort of the evil empire, right? And so everybody, everybody, all their subjects hated them. But that, go back to what I just said earlier about the civil war and, and, and you know, brother against brother and so on, you realize that, no, that's, that's an over, overly simplistic view that also can easily be traced back to the image that the Spaniards were promoting about the Aztecs, a kind of negative image of what the empire was like. Um, that's not that's not what's going on at all. It, it's it's the realization that in this new unstable world, um, a new arrangement is going to emerge at the end, and therefore indigenous leaders act uh, in a very kind of proactive, um, uh, uh, calculated way. I mean, and I'm, I'm meaning all this in a good thing, right? Like. They're not just waiting around for Spaniards to come along and say, will you be our allies? They are figuring out how they can position themselves and their family and their city-state and their neighboring city-states and so on in a way that they come out well uh, in, the, in the new arrangement. And therefore, it's just as accurate to see the Spaniards be, as being allies of these indigenous leaders. I think we have to flip that trope. So it's not Spaniards conquering the Aztecs with their indigenous allies. It's other indigenous leaders are um, taking advantage of this destabilization to topple Tenochtitlan as the center of the empire. And they're using the Spaniards as their allies. And what emerges at the end of the war are actually sort of two new indigenous empires. There's one centered on, on Tlaxcala, which is the other side of the volcanoes, other side of the mountains in that valley there. Tlaxcala now is in a much better position than they were before the Spaniards arrived. They essentially have kind of loosely created a, a kind of mini empire in that valley. And then in the Valley of Mexico, what was the number two city state in the old arrangement is now sees itself as being the number one state. And that's uh, Texcoco or Texcoco, which is right on the, on the um, shore of the lake. I mean, you can not nowadays, but in, in the early 16th century, Tenochtitlan on the, on the island in the middle of the lake, you could see Texcoco across the lake and vice versa. Um, and these are two different cities, but they're not different peoples, right? They're, they're, they're all Nawas, they, they speak the same language, they're all related, they're, the royal families are intertwined and so on. That, that um, It's sort of, I'm trying to think of a, a good uh, analogy in in old English history, probably people listening to this can think of, of many of them, right? Um, where, where England consisted of lots of different kingdoms and this kind of complex relationship. And sometimes these alliances that allowed uh, sort of mini empires to develop. So that's the idea is now Tishkoko is the top dog and Tenochtitlan is gonna be sort of number two in that arrangement. And the, 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 there has been a, um, a, a battle for power and control in Texcoco between um, a group of brothers. Their father had died just before this war begins and the brothers are kind of um, jostling for control. And one emerges as a result of the war, not only in control of, of Texcoco, but also in control of all the, the lands, um, the territories that it controls. And from his point of view, now, uh, he, that he now is the ruler 
the king we might say in in Nahuatl will be the the Klatoani, the, the great speaker. So he's the Huey Klatoani of Texcoco, and therefore any ruler that is left in Tenochtitlan is not going to be a great speaker. It's not going to be the Huey Klatoani. It's just going to be the Klatoan. And is he wrong? Because actually, there's 300 years of Spanish colonial rule. Not really. That and you know, hindsight's amazing. We can say, oh, the Spaniards won. But in 1521, the Spaniards are just in there in, in Tenochtitlan, which is kind of half half a ruin, right? Um, and it, it's not clear at all who's 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 really won. Uh, so that's really when the the conquest begins. I would say it doesn't it doesn't end in 1521. It begins in 1521. Here, this war is over, and now the story is now going to continue and going to get bigger and more complicated. There's going to be an battles for another 25 years and then you get the hundreds of years of, of of colonial rule i mean this is i'm sitting here just letting this wash over me so i know this is <laughs> nothing i thought about the aztecs is right and i'm okay because they're still cool they're just not they're very cool they're actually cooler than you realize yeah, yeah completely it's it's so I mean, much they're incredible poets aztec poetry is astonishing yeah just did you did you think of that no, I'm just, my mind's blown by the fact that you can pronounce the city names and stuff because I never got that far. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I, I want to talk briefly about your book, though, um, and the meeting between Montezuma and Cortez, because you describe it as the meeting that changed history. So give us just a kind of flavour of who were these men? What were their personalities? Yeah, the and crucially, you yeah. know, I mean, the, what the, the, it so significant? What's, what are, this, this, this moment when they meet... Um, and it, this is not a battle, right? This is a sort of diplomatic encounter right on the edge of the city where the, the um, Spaniards have been working their way for months from the coast into the center. And um, they're actually guided there by Aztecs um, who have met them on the coast, right? So they're not doing it alone. And, they, and, um, and Montezuma comes out of the city and welcomes them at the entrance to the city and then invites them in. So... So on the one hand, this is a wonderfully kind of symbolic way in which we can think about this, this clash of old world and new world and how once they have met, the world is never going to be the same. Right? So it's, it's great as a kind of a symbolic moment, but there's a twist. So what happens at that meeting, according to the Spaniards? Well, a year later, when the Spaniards at this point have been ejected from the city, most of them have been killed as a result. Uh, whatever has been happening in terms of a war at this point is definitely going against the Spaniards who were there. What does Cortes and, and his fellow Spanish captains say happened on November the 8th, 1519? They say Montezuma surrendered. They claim he surrendered. Oh yeah, he surrendered. And here's, and here's his speech. And they write down what the speech was, right? Like, like word for word. Um, and they said, and then he repeated his surrender later to a notary, because that's how things are going to work in the European world, right? It has to be written down and then notarized and, and so on. I mean, we, it's, we're still living in that world, right? Oh, it's been notarized, therefore it's real. Um, it's complete nonsense. They totally made it up. Why? It makes absolutely no sense that Montezuma surrender. Why would he surrender? Oh, well, it kind of does make sense if you think of him as being not really civilized, right? Being a barbarian, being very kind of superstitious. If you think of the Spaniards as being so superior that Montezuma is just amazed. It's like, oh my God, you, you guys, you're like gods. 
right? And and is so the an surrender accusation? story is wrapped up. Yeah. Is there an accusation of cowardice within that? You know, he didn't have the, the moral fiber to keep fighting. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He's the he's the scapegoat. And and so this is a this is a lie that is really important to the Spaniards because it means that everything that happens after that is a, a suppression of a rebellion and is 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 legal and morally justified. He surrendered. Then some of the other, you know, you know, hey, you know what they say about, you know, Aztecs as good ones and bad ones. And so the bad ones fought, even though their emperor had actually surrendered, right? So therefore, so all the violence that takes place after that, the mass enslavement, um, the slaughtering and so on, all of it is presented as being absolutely legal and justified. And they, and they present these sind sort of complex arguments saying everything, yes, it's true, we did these things. Yes, we enslaved people and so on, but we did them legally. And it all stems from that one claim that Montezuma surrendered. Um, he didn't at all. So the Spaniards didn't take control of the city. They were actually guests of Montezuma for six months. So, the, so the, the, you know, the real story is like, it's incredibly, it's incredibly interesting. It's far more interesting than the, than the kind of simple one that Spaniards presented. Now, but why does that lie last for so long? And I, and I think this is one of the reasons why this story matters today, 500 years later. Obviously it matters intensely to, to Mexicans as you would expect, but I think it matters to everybody for two reasons. And one is how can a lie like that last for so long? I mean, I suppose you could say, no, you just, you know, wrestles wrong and it wasn't a lie and he really did surrender. And then we can just like go, you know, have a cup of tea and forget about it. But if you, <laughs> I tried to write a whole book to, to convince people. And I have to say that, you know, I'm not, I didn't come up with that idea. It's been around for a very long time. And I found it all the way back in the 16th century with Bartolome de las Casas, the famous Dominican friar who met Cortez, knew Cortez in the Caribbean beforehand. You know, he talks about having dinner with him in Mexico City after the war and basically saying, Montezuma didn't surrender. You just, you just marched in and you caused incredible mayhem and you're enslaving people illegally. And then you turn around and claim that he gave you the empire and Cortez just laughs, you know? Like, well, at least I came in through the front door. So the, uh, this is what he says. So the idea that, um, that this is a lie is around, but it doesn't serve anybody's purposes whatsoever. Even indigenous peoples in the 16th century are happy to blame Montezuma. Yes, he surrendered, he was cowardly, he was superstitious and so on. And even all the way to this day in, Mexico's, in Mexico, Cuauhtémoc is kind of the heroic final emperor. He was, after Montezuma is killed by the Spaniards, then they elect, the Aztecs elect somebody else who dies probably of smallpox within a matter of weeks. And then they elect somebody else's emperor and he's the one who's um, defending the city at that siege exactly 500 years ago in August that we talked about earlier. So he becomes kind of the hero. Um, And then Montezuma kind of becomes sort of the, you know, the anti-hero, right? So that for the next 500 years, if you want to look at it from a Hispanocentric uh, viewpoint in which the Spaniards are the good guys, Cortez is like, wow, this incredible general who's able to bring down this huge empire with a few hundred people. It's complete nonsense. It's all part of sort of the creation of the Cortez legend actually in his own lifetime, but particularly by his, his, his son afterwards. Or if you want to look at it from a, uh, an Aztec-centric viewpoint, you've got a hero there in Cuauhtémoc. He didn't surrender. 
he kind of fought on and fought on until until the city fell and then he's um a sort of a proud captive of the spaniards who who is reappointed as the platuani as the ruler in in, in tenochtitlan but subject to spanish control and a few years later um cortez has him hanged from a tree in southern mexico so um which is sort of typical of of not i shouldn't just say spanish of european imperial behavior in the are, there are parallels aren't there because this is exactly what the british do when they go out and start forging an empire at the same time is to go out there and claim that it's god's work that god wants them su to succeed and that's yeah. being allowed to conquer these people it's like a justification yes absolutely and i mean and that i know we're kind of coming to an end here and and it might seem as if all I've done was is try to rehabilitate the Aztecs and see how great they are and then and then kind of bang away at how terrible the Spaniards are. And I think that's not ultimately what I try to argue and want to do. There there aren't good guys and bad guys in this. There are bad concepts. And the bad concept is empire. Uh, and uh, you know, there the things that are done by the Aztecs that um, we might want to, we might be kind of tempted to judge based on 21st century values are just about the empire. And it's the same with the Spaniards and the, and the British. The problem is the idea that it's okay to go to someone else's country and, and treat them as if they have absolutely no human value or rights whatsoever, whatever it is, whether you're going to enslave them or kill them or force them to change their religion or whatever it is. That's the problem is the, is the concept of empire. And ultimately I think what, what we want to get out of this story is that um, this is a really kind of vivid, dramatic episode in the history of empire from the age of empire. And, and we're living in the kind of, uh, there's a recent study of this with the, that um, begins with the phrase, we're living in, a, in an era of the imperial hangover. The, the, the great age of empire kind of that's culminates in the early 20th century and now is on the decline, but we are totally living in that world. So to loop all the way back to central Mexico and to Aztecs and conquistadors, how does that matter today in terms of how we see indigenous peoples, for example? I would argue that um, uh, the idea that, you know, and Alex, this is gonna seem like I'm basically like attacking your view of Aztecs, right? Um, the, to be the, fair, the my, my view of them hadn't evolved since I was seven, so it can take a beat. So there we go. Okay, so I'm a, I'm a, I, I still I'm like attacking seven year old Alex. That sounds really bad. <laughs> seven year old, a seven year old Alex was lied to. It's okay. You are crushing Alex's exactly. dreams. That's what you're doing here. <laughs> crushing a dream. The the negative view of the Aztecs that was created by Spaniards to justify what they did. It's, it's persistence, I would argue, leaks into how indigenous peoples uh, are viewed throughout the Americas. Um, that either, they're, either they're seen as non-existent. Oh, yeah, my civilization collapsed and disappeared. Rubbish, right? The Aztecs were terrible people, but, um, you know, they got their comeuppance and they're gone. It's all rubbish, right? There's, there's still millions and millions of indigenous people all over the Americas and many people of indigenous American descent living in Europe and in other parts of the world. And they uh, you know, have suffered 500 years of discrimination. And there are terrible things that are going on up and down the Americas that, in which indigenous people suffer things like um, 
sexual assault and murder and imprisonment and you know all of these kinds of things in in levels completely disproportionate to their numbers um and there is no country in the americas that can claim that you know they they, they do claim, but they can't rightly claim, or oh, we don't have indigenous peoples or with the ones we do have fully treated as equal citizens and, 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 and blah, 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 blah. So I think there's, a, there's an imperial legacy that, that goes all the way back to this time period. And trying to better understand what happened isn't just simply a fun exercise in, you know, uh, shattering seven-year-old Alex's kind of, you know, <laughs> dramatic vision of the Aztecs. Yes, I think there's something kind of, there's a sort of more serious um, importance, you know, I don't know if you want to call it kind of a political agenda. And I don't really want to call it a political agenda, but you understand what I'm saying. I don't think it is a political agenda, though. I think this, this is no. about reality and reflecting properly on the past, which is what you've done over the course of a fascinating hour. My mind is just completely blown. Yeah, thank you so much. We took our time getting round to the Aztecs. But boom, mic drop. You can just drop the mic and walk away now. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you so much. That was absolutely outstanding. Oh, you're you're very welcome. You guys are great. You you guys do make these um these totally interesting. I mean, of course, the guests. Where's where really? What's interesting? But no, you absolutely. two make you two you two are extremely entertaining. Yeah, and without, I don't know how without, you to um, ask all the right questions, but you do. <laughs> Without our guests, uh, it would just be Zach waffling on about his Spanish bones and me boring everybody about World War One. So, no, we absolutely do need our <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for, for having me on the show. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So, to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. 